Hello and welcome to another podcast presented by the Medical Council of New South Wales. This podcast discusses resources that can help doctors manage the growing number of patients presenting with mental health concerns. You know, we've all got our own little phrases or little questions that we might use. You know, I've noticed you've come in for a few times about worries about particular rash. Is there anything else that you're worrying about, the the ways you can kind of open up? And what are doctors' legal responsibilities for mental health referrals? It is really important that GPs are very familiar with that scheme and review the changes as they come up so that we make sure that we're writing treatment plans for patients that are eligible in the first place and that our treatment plans, the documentation, is in line with the Medicare billing criteria. More practical advice for doctors coming up shortly with our expert panel. Your host for this podcast is Dr. Miranda Solichin. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Miranda Solichin. I am the current Royal Australasian College of Medical Administrators trainee at the Medical Council, and I currently sit in the medical advisory team. And I have a background in psychiatry where I've worked across Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales. I'm very excited to host today's podcast as we are joined by two special guests to discuss the challenges associated with the growing number of patients seeking treatment for mental health concerns and the practical steps practitioners, and particularly GPs, can take to help manage this growing area in patient care. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Penelope Elix. Welcome, Penelope. Thanks, Miranda. It's great to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Miranda, I'm a GP by trade. I've been in general practice for about 13 years in practices in and around Sydney. I've also worked over the years in um, medical regulation for the Medical Council of New South Wales as a hearing member, as a medical advisor, and I'm soon to be the new medical director. So I've always had a blend of both the regulatory and general practice, and I'll be able to bring that to the discussion today. I'd like to introduce our second guest, Professor Samuel Harvey. Hi, Miranda. Thanks for having me. Well, I used to be a a GP. By far and away, the stuff that interested me the most was the mental health problems that were coming through the door. And so I ended up retraining as a psychiatrist. Then I changed my mind again and decided that actually there really was a lot of unanswered questions in psychiatry. So then I did my PhD. So now I'm a professor of psychiatry and I lead the Black Dog Institute, a medical research based in Sydney. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to have you both here today. I'd like to open up today's conversation by talking about the strain across mental health services, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic. As we know, stress has been at an all-time high, both across the world and the country, and there's been a massive increase in people presenting with mental health concerns for the first time, as well as many people as a result of the pandemic, having not been able to access their usual mental health supports. Sam, I'd like to throw it to you first. What are your views on this? I think it's fair to say there were rising concerns about mental health before COVID, and now it's even worse. So before COVID, what we had seen over the last decade was a steady rise in mental health symptoms, particularly amongst young adults, but also amongst adolescents. During COVID, that got turbocharged, and we saw really high rates of mental health symptoms. And in many ways, it was a perfect storm, because at the same time, there were many people experiencing symptoms it was much harder for them to go and see their GP or their psychologist or their psychiatrist. So the situation we're left with now is we've got many people with mental health symptoms, some of whom have tried to seek help and might have had disrupted journeys along the way, but many who just haven't been able to seek help 
yet and may be about to wander through a GP's door to try and begin that journey. What about the pandemic do you think caused these issues? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's a combination of things. We know that people were worried during the COVID pandemic and with good reason at at different stages of that. And, And so we always knew there was going to be a surge in anxiety. But actually what's had more of the lasting impact from what I've been seeing in the clinic and what we've been seeing sort of come to us at the Black Dog Institute is two things really. Firstly, the level of social isolation that many people experienced during the pandemic and many people have have struggled to get back to their level of social connectedness they had before and that's a really bad thing for your mental health. And then in addition to that, it's all the practical things around people who thought they were going to lose their job, thought they were going to lose their house, were worried about family members who they couldn't visit. And now we're really seeing that flow through with the cost of living pressures that everyone's under. And that's what's playing out in front of us now. I think initially, we might have been lulled into a false sense of security because we didn't see rates of suicide rise in the way that everyone had feared. But what we're beginning to see is actually the mental health consequences take a little time to build and to show. And so what we're noticing is that it's now we're getting patients come to us in the clinic. It's now we're beginning to see the data really show of what's going on out there. In the height of the pandemic, during various lockdowns, when we were providing a lot of support to our patients, we had a few jokes with a few of particularly my very anxious patients that this is what they've been training for. They felt ready and prepared. Their anxiety actually wasn't any worse than it was. And in fact, they felt a bit more ready for for something so anxiety provoking. But certainly over the time that's passed now, it's really become much more apparent, that kind of transition into this new normal that we all started using that phrase and the reality of, of those experiences really settled in. And certainly that's a big part of what we do in general practice is noticing those symptoms and, and now starting to manage them. Do you think in your practice it's mainly young people who you're seeing coming in talking about that or, or are you seeing it across the age range? It's probably across the age range and it does depend a little bit on your patient population. I tend to see a younger population and and I think one of the populations that I'm certainly most concerned about and I see in day-to-day practice is the young population who really have had their view of the future completely disrupted and there's a lot of worry and fear for, for a future that they thought was going to look a certain way that might look different. But I think the reality for adults and older Australians as well has been quite profound. So I think it does definitely cross those generations. That's really incredible to hear that you're seeing these concerns across the entire age range. Obviously, early diagnosis and prompt intervention is vital for a lot of our patients. How did you go about this? I think it's naturally what we do in general practice. And I think, you know, Sam can probably talk to us a little bit more around the importance of early detection and and what that means in terms of intervention outcomes. But I think in terms of what we do in general practice, we, we've got this privileged spot where we know our patients most of the time. Um, we know their background, we know their family history, we know a lot of our patients' risk factors, what might predispose them or precipitate mental health symptoms from coming forward. And I think during the COVID pandemic, we really trained ourselves to ask the question and ask it often, you know, how are you going? What's going on for your mental health? And I think being in that spot where patients trust us we were in that perfect landing pad for patients to come to us with those concerns. 
with that trust we've built over the years, it meant that, that patients would, would speak to us about it and we get that opportunity to intervene. If a patient came up to you and they presented with mental health concerns or distress, I'd be curious how you would approach that. Yep, and that's a, a very, very common presentation in general practice. It usually comes at the end of a what was supposed to be a 15-minute consultation that's already become 20, and then, by the way, I'm not feeling so good. It's a common thing that we encounter. I think one of the best things that we can do for our patients is to listen and to provide a, a safe space for people to disclose what they're experiencing and to listen with curiosity. You know, tell me more about that. What are you experiencing? What does it feel like? And I think we get into a few challenges there in terms of just, you know, managing our time and things like that, which we can talk about in a minute. But knowing that someone's going to listen and ask some questions around what they're experiencing often, I think, can be enough to say, look, it's really important that you've brought this up. I'm really glad you've told me about it. I definitely think I'm going to be able to help. Let's figure out what we might do from here. And whether that be delving into a full assessment of those mental health concerns or, look, I want you to come back and see me. Let's make a long appointment and do that with the patient so that we invite them to come back, make sure that they know that they've been acknowledged. We validated those concerns and we've made space for them to come back and I think we all have the skills to do that sometimes we need to build our confidence to do that and not be afraid of what those answers might be to the questions we might ask and if we don't feel confident that we know where we can go to either enhance those skills or refer those patients on in a way that the patient feels that they haven't been dismissed. And I think organisations like the Black Dog, obviously, it can be extremely useful in helping us enhance those skills and confidence levels. As a psychiatrist who ends up sometimes getting these referrals, it's so interesting to hear you describe the genesis, really, of the referral. So, you know, for me, in a way, the really easy thing about my job is that by the time I see a patient, they expect that I'm going to be asking them questions about their mental health. And, you know, for a new patient, I'll have an hour to have that conversation. But what's interesting hearing you talk is and thinking about a number of patients I've seen that moment at you know the end of a, a consultation that was meant to be around a rash or whatever else where they they sort of flag that mental health concern that's such a key moment in their trajectory and and almost certainly they've spent a lot of time thinking about are they brave enough to ask this or not and so I think you're right the real challenge is how do you not miss that opportunity to make a difference but not blow your clinic out of the water. When you have that conversation, you say, you know what, I'm so pleased you raised that. Let's book a time to have a proper chat about it. What's your sense? Do people come back or do you lose the fish off the hook at that yeah. moment? It's a real challenge. And I look, I must admit, I'm one of those GPs who always runs late. So <laughs> if I've got a patient who's engaging with me and I think they're not going to come back or this might be my one shot, we'll run late. And these are the reasons you run late in general practice. I think if you engage patients well, though, and you really sort of acknowledge the courage it's taken to come forward with that, my experience in my practice, especially if you go and book the appointment with them and you find, you know, you make the time with them, my experience is that they do come back. But, you know, I think sometimes you do need to say, well, let's just not worry about the time and say, this is the time. This is, this is the young mum who's got the baby in the arms that's crying and she's not going to come back so this is the time to do it so you've got to make that call I think in the moment I think that's right and also I think the other thing that's really key in that moment is hope mm. you know a lot of in spite of all the stigma reduction we've done around mental health 
there is still this narrative that that it is not treatable in the way that other disorders are. And I find it so interesting when you see a patient with depression and anxiety and you say, yeah, we know what this is and, and we know how to treat this and I'm really confident we're going to get you back to where you were. So many patients are genuinely surprised when you say that. And so I think that's a message we have to keep on getting out there. And I think that when you're talking about time, it doesn't actually take long to say, look, this sounds like, you know, if you want to use a term, a diagnostic term for it or whatever it is, but this is what this sounds like. It's really common. Lots of people are experiencing this and I've got some ideas on how we're going to be able to help and I think it's going to get better. That takes 20 seconds to say that I think we all have time to be able to instill that hope. One of the things we've found from training a lot of GPs about how to feel more confident having those conversations around mental health is if they know they've got in their back pocket a series of tools, an understanding of what they can use, that makes it so much easier. You know, that's the reason why we go out and train GPs in these things, because we know it makes it easier for them to have those conversations. Miranda, I think the other thing that's interesting to talk about, if we look at people with depression and anxiety, half of them seek help. Normally that pathways via their GP. And that's fantastic. And that, that's the group we've been talking about up to now, those that, that, that say something. The other important question for us to be thinking is, well, the 50% who have depression and anxiety symptoms who aren't saying anything in the consult, but the GP sitting there knows there's very good reason to suspect there is something going on because of the way they look, because of what their family said, because of their drinking or a range of red flags that GPs are very good at spotting. Penelope, one of the questions I often wonder is, do good GPs have questions that they will use to try and prise open that conversation a little bit when they're suspicious? You know, we've all got our own little phrases or little questions that we might use. You know, I've noticed you've come in for a few times about worries about particular rash. Is there anything else that you're worrying about, the the ways you can kind of open up or drawing it out to the wider population? Look, some people who present this way are also experiencing A, B, C or D, you know, does that ever happen to you? Those sort of questions that can normalise and open that door. I think the thing that we've got in general practice, and it's the thing that most GPs love, whether or not they realise it or not, is we've got time and not time in the immediate consult but time over over months and years and you do get those opportunities again and again and again and again to say hey I really want to see if Mm. this is something going on for you today and sometimes you can just ask directly if you know the patient well as well. Sam I'd be curious about any kind of more formal tools or guides that would be helpful for GPs who would like to upskill or to increase their awareness and education in this area. Black Dog Institute does two things. We, we do research, but we also sort of then try and find a variety of ways to get that out into people's hands. And one of the important things we do is we run a heap of training sessions for GPs around mental health. Anyone can go to our website, blackdoginstitute.org.au, and what they'll find there is there's some self-directed courses that GPs can do, there's some online courses, there's face-to-face courses, and they cover everything from how to have those conversations or if people are already comfortable with that and what they want to know is, okay, how can I use digital tools in my general practice? And we have a series of particular training programs focused on GPs' use of digital tools. 
you can see a psychiatrist like me through video conferencing without having to come to Sydney. So we see a lot of regional people on that. The other big thing that's been happening, and it was happening before COVID, but it's been accelerated by COVID, is the way in which we can use online programs or apps to be able to start treatment with people. And the question, I suppose, is why would a GP be suggesting an app rather than a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Well, firstly, it's not either or. And very often what we see now is that GPs will be suggesting one of the apps or online programs while they're waiting for the initial appointment with a clinician. But there will be other patients that aren't quite ready to go see a mental health professional. It can be a really good first step. There are other people that because of geographical restrictions, it's just easier to do it that way. Or young people, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent of teenagers and it seems there are there is a group in our society that are more comfortable typing on their phone than talking to other humans. And so in a way, one of the challenges for GPs is now there's so many apps out there, which ones do they choose? Because a lot of them are nonsense. A lot of them just don't have evidence base behind them. Mm. So I suppose there's there's two practical bits of advice I can give. One is if you're a GP that finds this is a regular question you're asking yourself and you want to really upskill about it, federal government funded program called MPRAC is spelt in a funny way. It's E-M-H-P-R-A-C, Electronic Mental Health Practitioner Tools and you go to the Black Dog Institute website and there's a range of dedicated training programs that GPs can do just to learn about those digital tools in particular. The alternate way is twofold. We now have a number of online sites that patients can go to, they can answer a series of questions and then they can be directed towards the digital tools that are appropriate for them and their symptoms. We have one situated on the Black Dog website The federal government also has one called Head to Health and there are some other providers that have them. And so that's often a really good place to start where you can say to a patient, hey, I want you to go and do this. When you come back next week for the longer conversation, bring the report because most of them will give a report that can be printed out and then that can be the starting point of the mental health care plan. I had a look at the MPRAC website and there is an amazing PDF guideline on there with all those resources, all those e-mental health courses and things like that, that it is fantastic. So I think there's two other resources that are worth mentioning. One is the RACGP's mental health resources. They've also got a a set of clinical guidelines on providing e-mental health but also your local health pathways. And if you're not familiar with health pathways, definitely get familiar with health pathways. It's LHD specific to your area. You can find your login and passwords through your primary health network. Certainly for my local health district, it's a fantastic resource with all the the local referral pathways and links to extra resources that are specific to your area. Fantastic. Thank you both. So if you have a click on the description box below on the podcast, we'll actually link a lot of these resources for you to have a look at as well. So we've talked a lot about how to empower our GPs and our practitioners and also our patients about education and getting digital apps. But once you've identified that patient who, yes, okay, they have mental health concerns, what do you do with them? You know, certainly the way I I do it is to really spend you know, give some time to acknowledging and validating the experience of that they've been going through and also to be able to say, you know, it's great that you've actually said something and there's something that we can do about it. I like to try and break down 
the conversation of what to do next into little chunks using that kind of chunk and check method that we often do in general practice, just making sure when you know you're about to give a lot of information to someone that you sort of break it down, make sure that it's making sense, stopping along the way to say, how am I going so far? Is this making sense? What questions have you got for me? I generally start that conversation with a bit of psychoeducation, just around what we think this looks like, be it anxiety, depression, and talking a little bit around it being common and it being treatable and it being something that we can definitely do things to help. I always make sure I explain what management options are, but before I do that, I usually pause and ask patients, I've got some ideas around what I think might help, but let's start with you first because you made this appointment. Do you have any ideas around what you wanted to do with this? And some people have quite clearly thought about it and said, I, I want to go and talk to a psychologist or I really want to talk about medications or whatever it is. But a lot of the time people will say, I don't know, what do you think? And then I think it's helpful just to break down and I usually draw a little sort of Venn diagram on talking about lifestyle and self-care measures, talking about talking therapies, be they with psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, whoever you think might be important to add into the mix, and still having a, a room for a discussion around medications if that's something that's relevant at that time. And then asking the patient again, look, what sounds good out of this mix to you? And then and leading that conversation. I think when it comes particularly to looking at referring for those talking therapies, I think it's important to explain what's involved in that process. And then what we want the patient to do with us, how we're going to be involved in the care, be it that they come back to talk to us while they're waiting to see someone or be it that they come back after they've had their set number of sessions so that follow-up is always clear because I think that's definitely an issue in communicating when patients sort of leave the room and think, what am I supposed to do? So making sure they understand what, what the expectations are. There has been barriers in terms of accessing specialist care. Can you tell us what that's like? It is a real challenge and I think it is hard to get into psychologists and psychiatrists. You know, in the past you might have made a referral to a psychologist under a mental health care plan and given the patient one name and that was fine, whereas my practice at the moment is to say, I'd love to just be able to refer you to one person, but I think it's better for you that I give you a list of a few names so you can see what the wait lists are like. And that's an extra step that does require patients to, to do a little bit of work on their own. But I think it's the reality that unfortunately those waiting lists are challenging. I think it shows us a little bit about the importance of having that relationship with patients and using those extra tools, those digital tools you might choose to use while you're waiting to get care with a psychologist or some other health professional and still engaging the patient yourself, getting them to come and see you, you know, and, and work through certain aspects of their care together. So Penelope, can I ask a question as someone who receives these referrals? How do GPs go about deciding whether they're going to refer someone to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or both? I'll give a classic doctor answer. It depends. Um, and it depends, I think, a little bit on some patient factors. And I think it depends on some practitioner factors. And I think in terms of the practitioner factors, just covering those first, I think your level of confidence in managing a certain condition or a certain set of symptoms is relevant. I happen to do an awful lot of mental health care in, in general practice and feel quite comfortable managing up to a certain point, but other doctors might not. And so knowing what your limitations are and where you might need support from a psychiatrist is important for you to determine for yourself. 
in terms of the patient factors, I think that we need to look at a couple of things. One is patient preference. And some patients do come to us and say, I don't want to see a psychologist again. I'm ready to see a psychiatrist and that's that's fine. Second is, I think, response to treatment thus far. So when we're sort of working in a certain set of treatment modalities, they might have been seeing a psychologist for some time, not really getting better, or using some medication and not responding, or having troublesome side effects or something like that, where we might need some help. I sort of have a a rule around sort of severity or, or type of symptoms. So again, I think that comes down to more severe symptoms, more difficult symptoms in terms of, say, manic symptoms or psychotic symptoms or symptoms that are getting outside of the scope. Comorbid issues, particularly comorbid mental health issues, you might have someone with depression and an alcohol dependence or ADHD is a big one at the moment. And if there is some sort of diagnostic confusion, so we're sort of not clear on what's really going on. Yeah, I think that last one's a really important one. I'm often surprised when I see a patient that sometimes many years have gone by, many different diagnoses have been given. And very often I find one of the things that that I can do to try and contribute is formulate what's going on, clarify what the, whether you want to call it a diagnosis or a problem is, and then that allows focus of of treatment. I'm surprised at how often, because in medicine, we're pretty used to the idea that if you try something and it doesn't work, you need to think, well, did I get the diagnosis right? I think we don't do that as often in mental health as we should. And and I do think that's a, a role that a good psychiatrist should be able to contribute within that treating team. And I think we're finding a lot in general practice particularly around those questions in adults in their sort of 40s and 50s who are now sort of questioning these other aspects, neurodivergency, for instance, ADHD, so these diagnoses that seem to be a lot more spoken about these days that can cause some troubles. I think looking at sort of personality traits that that are becoming quite difficult to manage or the impact of trauma, that complex trauma picture that can be really kind of challenging to piece apart. I did have a look to remind myself of those referral guidelines with psychiatrists and remembering that we've got access not only to refer to psychiatrists for opinion and management, but also just seeking that opinion and report using the MBS item number 291. 291. And we do do a lot of that in our clinic at the Black Dog Institute. And I think it's because you mentioned earlier about as a GP saying to a patient, well, I'm going to refer you to A and B, but I want you to come back and see me. And there's There's an abundance of international literature showing that where you get that collaborative care, where both the GP and the specialist know their role, there's such better outcomes. And and we see that in our clinic, that when I see a GP is actually involved, it makes such a difference and we get Mm -hmm. such better outcomes. I think that particular item number, the 291 of, I want you to see this person, do a really good assessment, help us understand what's going on, lay out a 12-month treatment plan, and then we'll get on with it, but knowing that we can raise the flag and get a review if needed, I think that's a, a really underutilised part of the, the mental health care system in mm. Australia. And it's a phenomenal service. I'll give the plug for you. I think a lot of the time in general practice what we need is someone to just hold our hand just a little bit and say, yep, you're doing the right thing, or nope, let's do this, and, and those black dog reports are fantastic in terms of getting feedback on it. Let's try this, 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 and if that doesn't work, we're going to do this, this, this. And you do, you've got your options available to you and and then you know where you're going. So the College of Psychiatrists have got a working with GPs section and a, a set of guidelines there that do outline what that 291 number is and how we can best communicate with our psychiatrists. There is a little bit more information out there.
Penelope, I'm really curious about the changes to the Better Access Initiative that followed the temporary COVID-19 measures. How have you been managing that? It has been a little bit of a journey. GPs are able to create a a mental health treatment plan under the Better Access Scheme that allows patients access to up to 10 rebated sessions per calendar year and 10 group sessions, which are often not used. During COVID, we obviously increased that amount and were able to access a second 10 I think the Better Access Scheme is wonderful. It's not enough, but it's it's definitely something. And I think just putting my medical council hat on, I think it is really important that GPs are very familiar with that scheme and review the changes as they come up so that we make sure that we're writing treatment plans for patients that are eligible in the first place and that our treatment plans The documentation is in line with the Medicare billing criteria. Certainly from my work as a hearing member, we encounter this a lot in terms of assessing practitioners who haven't had that documentation right or have made referrals uh, for patients who aren't eligible. So do make sure that you have a look at that MBS item number and make sure that you're writing the plans for the right people. I think the biggest part of that is explaining that to patients because that's another prominent complaint story that patients sort of come in for a plan and the GP says no or the GP says, oh, you've got to come back to someone else or something like that and making sure that you explain who the treatment plan is is for, what's involved in preparing one and what the patient has to do in terms of coming back for a review and making sure those referrals get to their psychologists. So MBS Online, looking up those item numbers, numbers explains step by step what needs to be done. So we've covered off a lot today. Thank you both so much. And, you know, we've covered everything from the importance of early diagnosis and prompt intervention, how to really empower both our GPs and our patients in terms of education, resources, you know, digital mental health resources. I'd like to take it to Sam first. What would be your one take home message for our audience today? GPs have an incredibly powerful position to facilitate people with mental health problems getting access to good treatment. And if they have the thought that there's something going on, then please ask a question. If I'm allowed to add a second part to the take-home message, it would be that organisations like the Black Dog Institute make these resources and training available to GPs because of that amazing position that they have. And so please use it, reach out to us if you don't find what you need there because that's one of the reasons we exist to help GPs do that job. Yes, Sam's absolutely right. We are in a really privileged position and we're in a prime spot to assist patients with these concerns, either if they come to us directly or we help them identify them. So my tips would be make that space for them, make it safe for them and acknowledge those concerns when they come up. Know your resources, know your local referral pathways and be ready to respond and respond with compassion and respond with curiosity. Fantastic. So that concludes our podcast, Mental Health Beyond the Referral. I'd like to thank again our wonderful guests, Dr. Penelope Elix and Professor Samuel Harvey for their wonderful contribution today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Miranda. It was great. And I'm Dr. Miranda Solichin. Thank you for listening. For more information on any of the content in this podcast, you can access further resources by clicking on the description link located right here on your podcast player. Or you can contact the Medical Council of New South Wales via their website, mcnsw.org.au. 
You can also subscribe and hear more podcasts from the Medical Council of New South Wales via Google, Apple, Spotify or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. The Medical Council of New South Wales acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging.